0: Welcome to Education Talks, I'm David Burke. Dr. Tassos Anastasiades is a highly experienced international schools leader with a focus on inspirational leadership, developing world-class teams, innovation and 21st century skills. He is currently the principal at Ningbo Huamao International School. Tassos believes he has been fortunate to have led schools and staff across the world, resulting in a diverse understanding of cultural differences, governance and educational practice. A prolific writer, publishing his thoughts on education to a vast online audience, it was a real pleasure to have him share his thoughts on Education Talks. Well, Tassos, welcome to Education Talks. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you, David, for inviting me. It's a pleasure
0: to be on your program. Wonderful. Uh, where are you uh, joining us from?
1: At the moment, I'm in China. I'm, I'm in a place called Ningbo, which is a couple of hours uh, from Shanghai.
0: Wonderful. How, how long have you been, uh, been there?
1: Uh, to be honest, David, we, we arrived um, uh, d- just at the end of the pandemic when China was still under lockdown, and it was uh, quite an experience, actually, um, wow. reaching China. Um, at the time, this was since last August, it just seems like yesterday, but at the time, uh, there were lockdowns. We had to take uh, various flights, Uh, I remember being in Paris and having to take double PCRs um, at a very high cost, having to wait 24 hours to see um, if it was negative, uh, extortionate flights, I think it was something like $3,000 to fly from Paris uh, to Beijing. Then we were stuck in uh, Beijing in quarantine, quite an experience for, uh, they told us seven, but then it was seven plus three, 10 days. I think it's the first time I've ever been locked up in a room uh, by myself uh, for 10 days. Um, and now, but, but um, now it's perfect. You know, overnight, suddenly they lifted up the quarantine. Uh, we went through a few infections and it's back to normal. And it's, you know,
0: lovely spring weather
1: now. So, yeah, it's great.
0: Wonderful. Uh, yeah, let's hope those days of quarantines are behind us. I did it a couple of years ago when I arrived in South Korea during the pandemic. And uh, boy, uh, it's, a, it's a tough times and let's hope that's behind us. So great uh, to have you on the program. Um, I wanted to ask you, you're an experienced educational leader uh, you've worked in many countries with um, you know, many professional achievements, but I want you to sort of give viewers and listeners a bit of an overview of your career in education.
1: Yeah, thanks for asking, David. Um, it goes back a, quite a long way. Um, Back to the '80s, actually. Uh, uh, I, I even remember the national curriculum um, being introduced, and I think at the time, I think it was early '80s. I was a very enthusiastic uh, science teacher, part of the science school review, which was uh, trying to be innovative in the way of teaching science, uh, so that it wasn't. Tech- Book-based, and I mean, this was many, many years ago. Um, that was in the UK after after I completed my my PhD in biochemistry at Nottingham. And while I was writing up uh, my PhD, at the time we had to get a typist to type it. And uh, being a poor student on a measly grant, uh, I couldn't afford a typist. So I took on a part-time job in a in a science school. I was dumped straight into a low-ability maths class in in Leicestershire. Uh, And um, anyone would think that was complete uh, and utter suffering. uh, And I remember coming into this class, a PhD biochemist, and having to teach fractions. Uh, And I couldn't remember how to teach fractions, uh, believe it or not. I couldn't remember how to add fractions. And that was my inspiration, because low-ability class... um, They taught me how to teach fractions throughout that lesson. And just developing that relationship with the students um, who who just wanted to be listened to um, just sold me into teaching. And that was the beginning of my teaching career in the UK. And since then, it's become very, very uh, global. I mean, I spent quite a long time in the UK training. I moved to Rutland as a biology teacher in the very green area of of Oakham, Um, and I think it was in the 90s when uh, there was a massive recession in the United Kingdom. Probably, the readers probably, listeners remember it, at such a times, everyone just dived, you know, repossessed houses, and it was just a chaotic time to be in the UK. So we decided just to sell up and and leave the UK. Um, education wasn't really going the right way, and we ended up in Cyprus, a very small school in Cyprus, where really started my career again as a as a science teacher. And uh, it, it, we were only there a couple of years because at the time the, the salaries were very poor. I think it was um, something like three hundred Cyprus pounds for for a family. And I remember meeting somebody from the Middle East, and He said, "Why don't you try um been to the Middle East, there's some great jobs in the Middle East. Um, and, you know, I, at the time we had to write letters to uh, to the Times Educational Supplement. so I wrote my letters and I was invited to interview in London, In I remember the hotel uh, very well. Ended up uh, getting a job in Bahrain with my family and three children, and there we went, we went a- across to Bahrain, um, which is now one of the most outstanding schools in the Middle East. It was a, a, a school a, a school called St. Christophers. Um, I spent four years there really developing my career. Um, fantastic opportunities. It was a great school um, where our children had a great education uh, but, and, and I met some r- great colleagues and it was my first introduction to global uh, education. It was just inspiration to be overseas and realise that actually students did love learning and they were passionate about learning. Um I then, I then had a promotion opportunity, and this is what spurred me into leadership. I was invited by a colleague uh, from um, Egypt who wanted to start up a school in, in Cyprus, in Limassol, and he wanted me to go as the bilingual head, uh, principal of school. So I went from head of biology straight to principal. Um, uh, quite a small school, bilingual, Greek and English, and, and that really was my introduction to real... International Education Leadership. From Limassol, we had an opportunity to go to Malaysia. Uh, So we spent a few years in Malaysia. And again, that was my introduction. I met a great guy called Ray Davis, who then went on and uh, was head of CIS. He introduced me to accreditation. We we took uh, a very large school in Malaysia, nearly 2000 kids through accreditation, but we met lots of different cultures. Asian nationalities, Um, so we spent about a while there, and being um, globally smitten, um, still with family, um, I had an opportunity in Zambia, and this was really a short opportunity to help a school in Zambia develop their curriculum, Uh, again a fascinating experience, you know, straight into from Malaysia, which is well developed, a completely undeveloped Zambia, Uh, working with teachers that were on $30 per month. Um, By then, my children were getting to university age, and they were with us uh, all this time, you know, three three children. So we decided to to spend a period back in the UK uh, so they could get their fees for the university, home fees, etc. Perhaps professionally, not a wise decision, because once you've been to places like Bahrain, Zambia, mm-hmm. Malaysia, and taught overseas, Cyprus, and you go back into Southampton, into an inner-city school. Um, I think after two years, perhaps, even my innovative methods and trying to get on with students, that perhaps was, was a low in my career. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, we definitely made the decision after two years, that this isn't a place that we could work. Uh, Rapidly going through the rest of my career. Um, So we landed back in Cyprus, which was really our second home, although we're British. We thought, let's go back to Cyprus. I worked again as a science teacher in Cyprus, but then helped develop a school in Paphos, a small school. Uh, But again, very, very small. Um, From then, I wanted to go again globally and more into leadership and, and develop my leadership career and also give back. Uh, because I, by then, had uh, developed a lot of experience. And there was an opportunity in Nigeria. Um, and it was um, some entrepreneur. Uh, he had this vision to develop the best school in Nigeria. Um, uh, and he set up this unbelievable building and infrastructure. And he recruited all the best Nigerian students and leaders of the world. But um, as misfortune happened... And, as risk happens when you're overseas, it was, um, I was going to arrive there in July, but he passed away in June. So I never actually met him other than at the online interview. Uh, I spent a fantastic year in Nigeria in the infrastructure, the buildings, but um, things are very different in Africa. And the leader had gone and the politics had, had remained, but I'd learned a lot. It was. A, I would never regret going there. And it wasn't mm. as dangerous a bit as people say. And the children are possibly the best children I've ever taught. That leads me to my uh, UAE experience where I spent six years, uh, worked with groups of schools, quality assurance, developing schools, inspections, KHJ inspections, also the principal of a school, developed my leadership a lot in those schools, uh, particularly in one of the schools, i think dubai international academy and something like 89 nationalities very much global uh-huh. after my six years we then dropped into india for a couple of years uh leadership ib development of a school and then two years in india and then covid hit we were isolated by the royal bombay yacht club um we decided we wanted to leave India at the time, two years into COVID. It was the worst scenario. You can imagine what was going on in India. We were then locked down. We managed to get an escape route. At that time, I didn't have a job. And the only way that I could, I managed through my networking, and this is where networking is important. Um, I managed to meet a colleague in Kosovo. And the only way I could continue my career is I managed to get a taxi from Athens, where we were. Uh, We had an escape flight to Kosovo by taxi, a couple of taxis, and we managed to get across the borders and into Kosovo. And I helped him develop the Finnish curriculum and put Cambridge um, into the Finnish curriculum. Uh, That was a short-term contract, very small school, but a fantastic experience. And then um, a colleague through LinkedIn again uh, contacted me and said, look, I know it's a difficult time, but I've got seven schools in Saudi Arabia here. We need someone like you to help. Saudi is going through change. Uh, the heads are now wanted to become more international. The men and women are wanting to learn uh, innovation, child protection. So I went there on a one-year contract to train um, the heads, uh, men and women, seven schools. Again, a fantastic experience. Uh, and then from there, it brings me uh, to my present position in China. So quite extraordinary. A global sport. Quite a global, quite a
0: global experience. Yeah. Now. I'm sure people ask this question a lot, but is there a place that, uh, that uh, has a special place in your heart where, you, where you've been on this uh, international You know,
1: that's, that's a question that almost everybody asks. You know, what's your favourite country? What's your favourite place? What have you loved most? But as educators, um, and I'm sure you read a lot of my articles, there's, there's one thing that keeps you going, um, and it's, it's the children in, in that classroom and if I think back to all the different countries um, from UK uh, to Cyprus to Malaysia to Zambia to Nigeria uh, to the Middle East um, in terms of uh, you know what motivates you as as an educator is those children in terms of location I've always been fortunate enough mainly to work in international schools Um, some bilingual but mainly international schools uh so the place then becomes an, a cultural experience and it's very difficult to say that i prefer i prefer to working in malaysia to africa to, to even mm. china i mean everywhere has just got a fascination honestly everywhere is a fascinating and as an educator you're reborn every time you start working with a different culture and understand the cultural expectations and the cultural norms, and you learn how to adapt. You know, it's just so inspirational. So, in short, favourites. I could I could find favourites in every single country. Honestly, it'd be very difficult to choose.
0: Now, you mentioned about networking and LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, you, you do write extensively on on LinkedIn and mm. particularly with a focus on, you know, I dare I say, ways that schools can improve. Mm. Um, what would you say is the most important thing that schools can focus on right now to, to improve?
1: Well, look, um, I think a lot of my articles focus on the simple paradigm shift because we're still... Um, even uh, since the 80s, when I first went into teaching, uh, and we were looking at empowering students to become self-regulated learners and uh, to learn by inquiry. Um, You know, it's now many, many years on, generation on, and yet still in schools, we're finding that they're making the, many schools are making the curriculum as an excuse uh, for an impediment uh, to learning uh, and blaming heavy content, etc., in terms of the barrier to being innovative in the classroom. So I think if, if there's one thing I would really recommend schools and through my experience to, to consider is don't be slave to the curriculum. Right? It's the children that drive the learning and focus the learning and allow the children to be innovative, create them time um, to learn in their own ways. I mean, I've just come back from a from a Year 7 class where I'm teaching some science now, and, and 50% of the class are completely uh, don't speak English, uh, and I was teaching them space and the universe and the Milky Way. And this is, today, was just I've just come back from at the end of my um, second week where they presented um, their findings on on the universe Uh, and this is grade 7 where the expectations were very low and what came out of it astounded me Um, language was no longer a barrier Uh, the second language students were able to produce um, some, and it wasn't a PowerPoint even, it was just some kind of, one of the students produced some kind of 3D show showing all the planets weaving in and out And whereas two weeks ago we would brainstormed about the planets and they couldn't even name them. Now they were talking about, you know, the number of moons that Jupiter has and Plato not being a planet again. And the conversation came from the students, the inspiration came from the students. I didn't use one PowerPoint, I didn't use one book, I used inspiration. Um, The curriculum, in terms of expectations, was exceeded way beyond expectations. I didn't focus on language impediments, I focused on the learning and the new learning. So in other words, everything for them was new. Um, Curriculum was not a barrier, I got them to self-assess and peer-assess. And they were probably more accurate than me because they assessed each other. And when they presented, they then said, well, um, what, what would you give this? Year? Oh, I think I think and they, they were giving really I and mean, these are year students. And even the Chinese students who were helping uh, uh, para- paraphrase each other. So the assessment was authentic. The presentation was there. They had created and self-assessed themselves. And there was no pressure at all to cover any kind of curriculum in fact, it had been exceeded, but most important was they had learnt a lot, right? They had learnt a lot, um, and it was authentic, and it was enjoyable, uh, mm. and I think if there's one message I would give to schools is um, stop um, yeah, PowerPoints. Books are fantastic resources, but I'm sure you're going to ask me a bit later. Do we need books? It's, it, it's a good question. Um, of course we need books but mm. the, the, the the curriculum is there allow mm. the students to be creative and and, and learn the mm. curriculum and use their own skills to, uh, uh, to, to, to to move forward it's all about learning not about teaching
0: and that is quite a paradigm shift do you think that you know just on that did we miss an opportunity with the pandemic when we you know we we, we changed school quite rapidly for a short time Space of time. Did we did we miss out on an opportunity there?
1: Well, David, um, we we did miss an opportunity, and we're continuing to miss an opportunity because um, this was a fantastic opportunity that proved in the best schools that learning happens. Mm. Learning happens despite uh, this um, delivery style of teacher being at the front, being the knowledge bearer open your textbooks, cover this exercise. And students having the autonomy and the freedom to learn things and research things for themselves and still um, uh, prove the evidence of learning. In fact, many many of my students when I was in Kosovo uh, was online and I was teaching at that stage AS Biology. Um, And these were Kosovo students that were quite low ability. But two years later, I hear that one of them, um, got a very high IB and uh, made it made it to top dentistry college. Uh, she was the product of the pandemic uh, of the pandemic and self empowerment, and mm. was able to take advantage of that uh, in developing her own talents and not being subdued by teachers uh, and tests uh, and stress and blossomed. And within those two years, for her, it was a fantastic success. Uh, COVID for success. But very, very quickly, many schools have reverted back to the concept of, and dare I say it, they're talking about lost learning. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think about that that concept, lost learning, how can you lose learning, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. In other words, what they're talking about is we haven't been able to cover what we wanted in our curriculum as teachers. Mm -hmm. The students haven't stopped learning, they've probably learned more than anything in terms of understanding the pandemic different ways of learning uh, global changes enormous amount of learning um, throughout that but to be able to revert back to schools and put the pressure on uh, students you know after being maybe up to two years online uh, and cause stress for these students is indeed a lost opportunity Again, it relates to the paradigm shift. If the paradigm shift was this, let's let's capitalise on the learning that happened through through the pandemic, you know, let's look at the learning that happened and looks at the evidence of learning. Now let's build on that. Uh, then I think we'd be way more forward, way more forward.
0: Indeed. Now, perhaps the next say opportunity or maybe a forced paradigm shift is going to come maybe uh, with uh, the development and the introduction of AI into schools. Um, Do you have any any views on on AI at the moment?
1: Well, David, yes, I've been I've been also been writing a lot about this because um, I mean, how long have we had uh, internet for how long have we had Google? Um, And there's always the mindset in uh, teachers that say, "Look, don't use the internet. Don't. You must use the book, and you must use this book only. And don't use your iPhone or don't use your iPad. Uh, you must use this, and you must you must use my notes." Now, let's let's now embrace real life. Right, let's embrace our youngsters. Uh, many of our sixteen-year-olds, uh, you know, two thousand and. Uh, if I get my maths right, 2007, they were being born. Uh, we were, I don't know what iPhone we were on by then, so they were born into the iPhones and probably the iPads. Um, certainly, I i recall my own daughters, my, my daughter who is now a clinical psychologist in Cyprus, she had her first uh, Nokia phone, I think, she's now 29, uh, and they were using, I think, MSN or something at that stage. So they were using Internet at that stage. right? And then eventually Google came and Yahoo and multi-satellites and all of this stuff. So we're surrounded by technology and our children are born into technology. Now, learning obviously happens and it, it happens through technology and they know how to use it. If, you know, again, I was on, on on one of the whiteboards this afternoon, and you know, fumbling along with my fingers on this touch screen, and one of the year seven students came up. Give me a minute, sir. Boom, boom, boom. He fixed it. Right, he fixed it. So AI. Well, look, AI. Google AI. Yes, you can ask it. You can ask Siri. You can ask anything for the answers. But does that alter the fact that? If you're assessing your child, you need to know your child. If you're setting an assignment, an assignment that can be written uh, by a computer or by Google and you're using that for a, an assessment, is that the child's fault? Right? If I went to learn uh, Chinese uh, in, uh, and I was surrounded by Chinese students and you gave me a challenging assignment and I thought, right, I'm completely stuck here, I'm frozen like a like a mouse in the corner, I think. So what am I going to do? Ah, Google, Google, ah, I, I. right? So I'm going to be innovative and I'm going to try and find some ways to get out of this hole using my, my skills. And you know, maybe chat GP would be one of the options if that's the way you want to assess me. But more authentically, if you want to assess me by talking to me and discussing my understanding, and getting me to peer assess or assessing other children, doesn't matter what technology you have. Hmm. Because the understanding of real-life learning is internal. Um, You can't get a computer that goes inside you and speaks. Well, I hope not yet. But that's not happening. You're still breathing. You're still emotional. You still have to apply the learning to your own situation. When you're learning science, you still have to know why you've got a heart and what happens when you run. Of course, AI can. But if I then say why, or suddenly talk to you and say, describe you know, explain this to your partner, or uh, that's what real learning is. It's human. So I I think it's a fantastic tool to have because it will continue to evolve like much other technology will evolve, but will never uh, replace authentic learning, authentic teaching, and the teacher that's uh, passionate about teaching children. It will be an aid for them if they look at it positively. Um banning it is like banning a mobile phone or telling your kids not to use the iPad when you're out for a meal. How many of us succeed to do, with, with doing that, right? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because they're going to find ways of, of getting through it. And why shouldn't they? Because they're going to be innovative and we want them to be innovative. Why shouldn't they? So I think it, uh, it's a positive move uh, and that schools should embrace it. But going back to my original... Change your paradigm. Change it to learning, not teaching. Yeah,
0: yeah. At at a minimum, at least, perhaps the end of uh, yeah. as- accessible homework. Perhaps uh, <laughs> that might yeah. be uh, a move in the right direction. Um, Absolutely. I wanted to ask you. Um, so, in your career, um, what is your most proud achievement to date?
1: I mean, look, when you're when you're in a classroom. Uh, You 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 get this buzz all the time in terms of achievements. So it could either be achievements in terms of us inspiring students and teachers. Um, And I've developed many many friends over the years where um, I've inspired colleagues who are still in touch with me. And it's just about being there for them and listening to them. Uh, I had one colleague in Collegiate American School. I, I spotted, uh, I was doing learning walks, and I could see he was an outstanding practitioner. The students were just, all, you know, all over the place and learning focused. And so I, I had a chat with him, and I asked him what his ambition was. He said, I oh, want to go into leadership. He's an American chap. Uh, and he was inspired by the fact that I recognized his, his talents. And he used to pop in for a couple of minutes I was a quality assurance director at that time. He used to uh, pop in for a couple of minutes every other week or send me a message. What do you think of this? And he'd worked it out for himself, right? But he just wanted to feedback on his and how do you think about this? And uh, he then managed to get a promotion uh, and he still kept in, in touch, just sharing ideas, you know, showing the passion being listened to. Then he went to Kuwait and I know that now he's is in Abu Dhabi as a a principal but even still now we still catch up on the odd what's up how's it going and he still asks for advice even now asks for advice now that's inspirational and I've got many colleagues like that in terms of developing uh, individuals and many students like that so perhaps they're the magic moments in an educator in terms of leadership many challenging roles and I think perhaps my most memorable I was working in Dubai, and you know, Dubai is very rigorous KHJ inspections, you know, good to outstanding. Uh, all lessons must be good or better, all teachers must teach good or outstanding lessons. And and that was great because I had great support in a fantastic school, and it was the first IB school that wanted to get to outstanding. So, uh, wonderful leadership there, wonderful group to work with, and we focused on on just basically three different things. We focused on making the curriculum accessible to every child, right? Uh, At that time, I created the concept of learning ladders, which then became a business somewhere else. But anyway, at least we inspired the idea. So uh, the idea was that students knew what they were to achieve and this concept of students achieving their own expectations. We then used um, Agile Assessments, CAT4, um, Cognitive related tests to, to know the potential of each student so that teachers would know the potential. Uh, and we used a literacy because literacy was the biggest barrier to student learning. So we assessed their literacy again through GL and GRT once every um, term. So we were able to track their evidence of learning and put into practice any intervention. Now, we also trained the teachers. So, we had a Leaders of Learning program. So, we identified our best teachers. And this was a great company. Uh, Malcolm uh, Greenough and Caroline Greenough, who worked with me and Interventures, and we developed this Leaders of Learning program, Insight. Uh, And the idea was when we found outstanding learning going on, we then got them to peer with each other. And they then peer taught each other. And then we then met them as a group, shared ideas. I think we introduced um, a number of good teacher or good lessons observed from... It wasn't me, but there was another quality assurance colleague uh, working with me. I think it was from 20% to 70%. And we had, we were on this project for a two and a half years and, and we had to prove that uh, 75% or above lessons were above expected. Progress was 75% of our attainment. Was, and it takes a long time. Um, but I did hear that the after I had left, um, that the school had achieved, the first IB school had achieved outstanding. And I think mm. everything that we'd put in, uh, it was absolutely worth it. And uh, I think for me, that's memorable. The whole collaborative approach, the whole focus on student learning, the whole uh, teachers working together, um, people from external coming in and, and assisting us and giving us their knowledge. It was just a stunning time.
0: Um, Tassos, is there anything now that you're working on that uh, you're excited about? Well, look, um, very much with the IB. um, And when you go to
1: a different school, you have a different um, scenario. Um, And again, a different culture of a school. So in some ways, you have to step backwards um, to move forwards. Uh, And certainly here in, in China, innovation is happening in ib schools but they do have the strength of outstanding students who um, when you finish the lesson they don't want to leave right these are the these are the kind of students so they're happy to go home at 5 30 and then start their homework at 6 30 and indeed if you forget to give them homework they will remind you <laughs> right but the focus i have had in this school has been again very very basic is to improve student interaction so we've gone back to the think-pair-share strategy uh, because students are not very good at interacting and trying eventually to get them to present uh, is a skill that they will learn very very quickly and they have learned very quickly they've proven but it's not common practice and even though it's an IB school the methodology is still very, um, I suppose, 80s. they still very heavily reliant on textbooks and, and content. Uh, the other focus I've been working on here, again, very, very basic, is identifying end-of-year literacy expectations. And we've managed to do that so that the students are able to measure their own literacy expectations. And they're based on National Curriculum Australian and in British. And we, we we simplified them so that it's accessible to all students and parents. And the move is that these literacy expectations are used in every classroom. So every class teacher is a teacher of literacy. Because otherwise, 90% of the talk amongst the students is Chinese. We're a bilingual school, very little international students, so we've got to encourage them uh, to speak English. I think the most important thing is. You know what I'm. The message I'm part on is that in every school there's a different culture, and mm-hmm. as a leader, you have to lead uh, by being led by the students and by the cultural needs. Uh, you need to have the armour to be sensitive to the cultural needs, the student needs, and be able to then implement um, the ways forward to, to of what you think is the right thing but sometimes may not be perceived as the right thing very much also in India where still they believe that regular examinations and testing is is the way forward and of course they will always say that's been always been successful and they have been successful and even here in China they've always been successful and they have been successful in that methodology so it's a certain tightrope between my passions innovation But also recognising, actually, that still works, right? That still works.
0: Now, at this point of the interview, I usually ask, um, how can people get in touch with you? But uh, I think I already know that answer, Tassos. Now, you're very uh, (laughs) active on LinkedIn. You have a a big, big following. Um, And I just want to ask you, like, you know, how much do you enjoy um, using LinkedIn to connect with educators and, and perhaps sort of share how you see it as a beneficial platform for, for teachers?
1: I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it, I really do and you know I think I've done probably about 80, 80 to 90 articles at the moment because you know I find it inspirational to to hear from fellow educators and the good practice that's going on in their schools and and, and it helps me also grow Um, and I think this is very, very important for us as educators Um, and it also reinforces to me that as education leaders we're all actually rowing in the same way, the same direction we're all talking about the same thing Um, and just to get that commonality and networking is really quite refreshing. And even if it's just a few comments on each other's work and the recognition of each other's work, uh, it's quite inspirational. Uh, I, I, I certainly get motivated by it, and I hope that by trying to give back to the followers what they want to hear um, is something that keeps me going. And I tried to sense that from the feedback, the questions that I get asked, um, and usually a question that asks me and challenges me inspires me into writing another article um, mm-hmm. it's a fantastic forum uh, which i hope will evolve even more in the future into more um, real networking opportunities where um, where we really do communicate because i think we're very much alone as educational leaders even globally
0: yeah now I've been following you a lot for a long time on LinkedIn. In fact, it goes right back to we almost crossed paths in person. We, well, we were in the same room. You were presenting at a conference in Hong Kong. And um, I remember thinking, gee, I really enjoyed what you were talking about. And I actually looked you up afterwards just to sort of pass. I think I sent you a message saying thank you for your presentation. Um, and since then, I've followed you and really enjoyed uh, your contributions that you make. Thank so you. Well, thank you for that. And, uh, of course, thank you so much for uh, your time here today. Really, really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thank you so much, David. I think um, what your initiative is is quite inspiring. Um, I think if uh, this kind of platform uh, raises an opportunity for fellow educators to communicate or even have um, shared uh, discussions and, and podcasts where we can globally meet other teachers and and share our experiences. This this could be a, a phenomenal way forward. And I mentioned with LinkedIn, um, they do there is that attempt to collaborate by putting at at whatever, mm-hmm. uh, but there's nothing uh, like this personal contact and personal discussion. Um, and talking about technology, we now have the technology to do all of this, in fact we have more than enough technology um, to do this Uh, and I will reinforce that globally um, you can feel like you're in it alone Uh, Mm -hmm. and a bad day in leadership or in teaching you just feel that you know it's the worst day ever but when you're able to share these experiences with colleagues and find out that actually It's fluid you know you have great days with students and great days with teachers and great days but there are better ways of doing it and you know it's a passionate way of looking forward i think this forum uh, can really have a major impact on on the field of education so i really thank you for your initiative um david and i hope that we get a chance to speak again
0: Indeed, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much and look forward to uh, crossing paths in person soon in the future. Thanks. Thanks, Tessons. Education Talks is an Ed Events production for the Ed Events community. You can keep up to date with the development of the community by registering on the website at ed.events.